0: you'll continue standing, we're going to do the reading from Luke 16, 19 through 31. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, and who has lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them, your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: So, friends, I actually want to start with a question. You can raise your hand here. Uh, are any of you familiar with uh, Dostoevsky's parable, The Onion? Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, we, I am going to talk about this parable, and I am going to circle back to it and work our way through it as this sermon goes on. But the parable begins, actually, with an old Russian woman who Dostoevsky says is so wicked that at the time of her death, no one could remember a single good deed that she had ever done. So apathetic was she about good deeds that when she died, demons came in the parable and took her to the lake of fire. You can already tell that there are parallels between what Dostoevsky is doing in this parable and what Jesus is doing in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, not only because what we have is a lake of fire to which uh, the wicked go after death, but that uh, more importantly, why these two characters end up there. The old woman ends up in the lake of fire, not because of good or evil deeds that she did, but because no one could remember a good deed that she had done. It wasn't so much that she had done good or bad as much as she had left many goods undone. The rich man is similar. Every day, Lazarus lays outside of his house. And Jesus doesn't say in the parable that this was an exceptionally bad person. Just simply a negligent person. What we might say is an apathetic person. Now, here's the irony of the whole parable, and it is a parable. When I was in fundamentalist circles, they always wanted to argue that this depiction of hell was literal and real. That completely misses the point. Completely misses the point. If the point of the parable ends up being that there is little, little literal fire burning under us, no good comes of it, except for threats. The point of the parable is to ask, why does this wealthy man end up in this situation? The reason this matters is because throughout the Gospel of Luke, the entire time, Jesus has been partying with deep sinners, he's been pitying deep sinners, he's been pardoning deep sinners. Loan sharks. Sex workers, national traders, tax collectors, the worst sinners that society can imagine. Jesus has been hanging out with these people and getting in trouble for it over and over and over. And then we meet a rich man of whom it is said he didn't do anything exceptionally bad. He was just apathetic. So, the question I asked as I sat down to write this is why does Jesus seem so lenient with people who have done evil things, but he's eternally hard on those who have done neither good nor bad? I think the answer here has to do partially, this is my guessing, I could be wrong. Partially with the nature of evil itself, the nature of sin. See, we don't think about it this way, but at the root of almost every evil thing we can do, at the root of almost every sin we commit, is a seed of love or a seed of goodness. And that may seem surprising, but let me unpack that. At the seed, the seed of evil is often love or goodness. Often that love or goodness is misplaced. So for example, greed. Greed is what? The love of money, the love of things. It is to be too passionate about things, but to be passionate and to love something is itself a good thing. So it's distorted, it's misplaced, but at least there's love in there somewhere. Or maybe consider lust or obsession. In lust or obsession what you have is a distortion of good a distortion of love it is to take something beautiful and twist it for one's own purpose and that is wrong that is sinful but at its root is still desire and desire is not bad the christian tradition has actually long taught that sin evil and wickedness, sin, evil, and wickedness, that evil is not actually a thing that exists by itself. The Christian tradition uses language called deprivation, where evil is a deprivation of good or evil. That is, evil cannot exist on its own, but it is rather a parasite that can only exist in the presence of something that is first good. So it can distort a good thing, it can mar a good thing, it can manipulate a good thing, but it requires a good thing as a seed for evil to grow. This then, I think gets at why Jesus is so hard on the rich man and so lenient with other sinners. Because if I'm right, and love and goodness or a desire for security or belonging is at the root of a lot of our evils, the problem with apathy is that apathy doesn't feel anything. Apathy is the opposite of desire, the opposite of passion, the opposite of goodness, the opposite of love. It is literally ah-pathos. Pathos Pathos is feeling and desire with ah at the front negates it. It is against feeling and desire. It is against love. Let me illustrate this this way to make it a little more concrete. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, tells the story of uh, several stories of a group of people from hell who jump on a bus and they take a trip to the gates of heaven and they're each greeted by somebody they knew in their life. And toward the end of the book, he tells of this woman who is standing at the gates of heaven waiting to be greeted by her son. And she begins to shout, where is Michael? Where is Michael? Where is my son? And she is greeted instead by someone who is other than her son. And the man says to her, he says, listen. Your desire to see your son is rooted in a distorted love. You confuse Controlling other people with love. You confuse manipulating other people with love. And in fact, you do all of those things because at its root, you desire those things more than you even desire God. He says this to her, He says, you're treating God only as a means to Michael, but this whole situation consists in learning to want God for his own sake. You exist as Michael's mother only because you first existed as God's creature. That love is older and closer. Notice what he did. He ties it to love. He ties it to love. He said, at the root of all of this is a seed of love. So the narrator is talking to his own person who greeted him from heaven and says to, the narrator says, is there any hope for her? Is there any hope for this woman to enter into eternal bliss? And the person who greeted the narrator from heaven says this. He says, I, there is some, what she calls her love for her son has turned into a poor, prickly, astringent sort of thing. But there is still a wee spark of something that's not just herself in it that might be blown into a flame. So what's he saying? He's saying at the root of even a lot of the harm we cause each other, the harm we cause is still wicked, it is still evil, it is still manipulative, it is still sinful, and it should still be called all of that. But at the root of it, there is a seed of something that if we are attentive to it, could be blown into a flame of grace if what is at the heart of things is actually Love and goodness. The problem with apathy is that there's no love and goodness at the root of any of it. There is nothing redeemable about apathy because there is no love, even distorted love, in apathy. This is the problem with the rich man seeing Lazarus lay at his gates every single day and doing nothing for him. He says the rich one lands in Hades precisely because he is so consumed by concern for his own comfort that he ignores or fails to notice, ignores or fails to notice the condition of the pained Lazarus who lies in plain sight. He sees him and he doesn't. turns out that maybe the reason Jesus is so lenient with other people is because our eternal fate is not really about whether we've done good things. It's not about the good things we've done or the bad things we've done, but what if it's actually about the good things that we have left undone because we just didn't care enough to do them? So we return to Dostoevsky's parable of the onion. An old woman, no one could remember a single good deed she had ever done. She was apathetic about everyone else in life, and she dies. She wakes up in the lake of fire. No one could remember a good deed she had ever done. In fact, apparently in the parable, she has a guardian angel. And the guardian angel does a brainstorming session and says, what good deed of hers can I remember to tell God? so he mulls over it for a while, thinks about it for a while, and finally he remembers a good deed that she had done. It says, once she pulled up an onion out of the ground and gave it to a beggar woman. I can go tell God about that. Which, frankly, is more than the rich man ever did in Jesus' parable, right? The rich man in Jesus' parable... Literally has Lazarus laying outside of his gates every day so that he has to see him, and gives the rich man gives the scraps from his tables to his dogs. Again, Luke seems to have this thing about caring about people more than animals. gives the, gives the scraps to the dogs instead of the man who's laying outside of his house. And then those dogs come and lick his wounds. Lazarus' wounds because he doesn't have health insurance. Where does it come from? Where does it come from for us to see human beings suffer and not feel anything? Turns out there is an answer to that question. Psychologists, sociologists, and theologians generally seem in agreement. The more privilege and wealth we have, the more apathetic we are about other people's suffering. We don't have to experience it in ourselves anymore. And it's easier to believe that the world exists for everybody else the way it exists for me. And so what do we do? We move out of certain neighborhoods to make sure we don't see what we see. Our privilege and our wealth actually makes us apathetic to the suffering of other people. This is why I think Luke is so hard on the wealthy. Because it makes us not care. And that is the one thing that will destroy our souls faster than anything else is not caring notice how this presumption and this sense of entitlement and wealth and privilege shows up when the rich man talks to Abraham he wakes up in fire he's thirsty, he's tormented and he says this He says, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. All right, so just look at the presumption of this statement. There are so many things happening here. First of all, every day this man came out of his house and there was a man laying here with open wounds that he ignored. And now he only notices him and he only pays attention to him because that man might now be able to do something for me. But notice, he still doesn't care about Lazarus enough to talk to Lazarus. He does not acknowledge Lazarus's existence to Lazarus. He doesn't. Call, he acknowledges that he knows his name, but he doesn't call Lazarus by his name. He just references him. And notice what he's asking him to do. He's asking him. He is asking Abraham to make Lazarus his slave. Tell him to leave heaven and come to hell so that I can find momentary alleviation of my pain. We are well beyond the power of this story being about whether those flames are literal or not. This is about presumption. It is about the privilege of assuming that other people exist to meet my needs and me not caring about them unless they can meet my needs. So the angel says, I remember she pulled up an onion and gave it to a beggar woman one day. The angel rushes to God and says, God, she pulled up an onion. I remember a good thing that she did. And God says this, take now that same onion, hold it out to her in the lake. Let her grab hold of it and pull herself out of the lake. If she can do that, she can enter paradise. Russian writers don't mess around, folks. Brothers Karamazov is a slog, but these kind of stories are like, whoa. Like they get right to the heart of things. So the angel says, deal. Goes to the edge of the pit of the lake of fire and he gives the woman the instructions. Reaches down to give her the onion. She reaches up and she grabs it. The angel begins to pull her up. Her feet leave the ground. She's now six feet, now ten, hundreds of feet, holding on to this onion, grasping for dear life. And she is right at the lip of the chasm when something unexpected happens. Unexpected, As what Abraham says to Lazarus, Abraham says to Lazarus when he said, or I'm sorry, what Abraham says to the rich man. Abraham says to the rich man when he says, send Lazarus down to me. Abraham says to him, he says, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Now now, now listen. Luke's entire message from the very beginning of this gospel has been the reversal of fortunes. He's been saying this. This is what makes it so spicy, right? Do you remember last Advent when we started this entire walk through Luke? We got to Mary's magnificate, Mary's Prayer after she realizes she's pregnant. What does she say there? God, lift up the humble and the poor and set them on thrones and cast down the mighty and the rich reversal of fortune she's they luke has been saying this the whole time and yet it is completely unexpected because nobody thinks they're the bad guy right isn't there a film where there's like or is it like a monty python or something where like the nazis like soldiers are like wait a minute are we the baddies Like, nobody thinks they're the bad guy. Everyone's the hero in their own story. But this is why Jesus is so hard on the wealthy. Because A, the wealthy are, he's not nearly as hard on the wealthy as the wealthy are on the poor. But the real issue here is that there is a reversal of fates that happens in the kingdom of God that God does not value the way we the world the way we value the world and that God is working to upturn the entire systems of how we operate and what we assume and we're apathetic about it. It's cool. not just apathetic, sometimes we actually justify it. Sometimes we justify it. We have been moral, our moral imaginations have been so long shaped by capitalism and the movement of money and how it works that it is hard for us to imagine something morally outside of those categories. We consider it a virtue in our society. People are lifted up as heroes because they can generate wealth, whether they are good people or not. We will put them in office. As long as they can generate wealth, whether they're good people or not. We will excuse so many things about them because our highest value, our highest virtue is to generate wealth. And then people in our society who don't generate wealth or can't generate wealth, we villainize them. We villainize them at worst or at best. We just ignore them because they're not worth our time because they can't do anything for us. And I am telling you that this is the exact thing that Jesus is criticizing. The assumption that some people are worth my time because they generate money or they do something for me and some people aren't worth my time because they don't generate money or they can't do anything for me. The rich man expects, he, he, he does not expect Waking up in the lake of fire because he is a son of Abraham, because he is a part of a chosen nation, and because he is wealthy. And it's not that different than us. I've gone to church my whole life. I got baptized as a baby. I got baptized as an adult. I can say the creed without crossing my fingers. Therefore, I'm good. Then I cross my finger. Right? Like... This, this is what we think. Like we have all of these things, and we say we did, we did, we did. But again, what if the point is not the good you've done or the bad you've done? But what if the whole point is the good you've left undone? So what happens then to the woman is this she's about to the lip of the chasm. And other people start to notice that she's about to escape and they want to escape too. As they rushed her, they grab onto her arms and they grab onto her legs and they grab onto the onion. They grab onto all, anywhere that they can grab. Hundreds, thousands of maybe people maybe grabbing onto this woman and the onion is holding But our character doesn't change just because we die. The woman was apathetic and didn't care about people before. She still doesn't care about them now. And so she begins to kick and scream, I'm the the one being pulled out, not you. It is my onion, not yours. And at the moment she screams that, the onion snaps. And she falls back into the chasm. And the angel weeps bitterly. The rich man is weeping bitterly. Again, with all the presumption in the world, he tells Abraham, he says, send Lazarus who is in eternal bliss right now. Send him back to that world of suffering where he laid there with open wounds that dogs licked. Send Lazarus back to tell my five brothers so that they don't end up here too. And Abraham says, no, no, that's not how this works. Notice this, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. My PhD is in rhetoric. My interest is in how persuasion works. How do you get people to do certain things by speaking to them? I think Jeff is working on something similar. Here's what you don't do. When people are apathetic, what doesn't work is reason. Because the problem with apathy is not the lack of evidence. The problem with apathy is not the lack of scriptural citations. It's not the lack of the presence of a prophet. It's not the lack of a, a conscience being pricked every day when they see someone suffering. The lack of evidence, the lack of argumentation is not the problem with apathy. The problem with apathy is that I do not Love. This is why we talk so much about holy love for God, neighbor, and self. It is the only thing that can fan the flames of grace. But it is scary when that love is not there. This time of year, of all times of year, we like to think that if someone rose from the dead if four ghosts came to me, that I could be convinced. And as much as I love this story, it would have never worked. Scrooge knew that when you underpay your employees, that the effects of it is felt by their families. He knew it. He saw it every day when he walked outside around town. He saw it. More evidence is not what he needed. What he needed, hopefully, is what he did get in the end, which is a heart that can feel. So this is what I want to call you to in that, man. to sit with until and, and, t- and till a heart that is soft and can feel because it turns out that maybe our eternal fates are not determined by the good things we've done and the bad things we've or even the bad things we've done but maybe what if they're determined by the good things we left undone because we didn't feel them deeply enough to do them. And I think feeling begins in this moment as we receive communion. This is why I love in our communion liturgy that we have a couple of lines that talk about what we have not done. We have not done your will. We have not loved our neighbors. We have not heard the cry of the, Let this moment be the moment that our hearts are made tender again.